Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, another busy Monday night show ahead of us tonight, and it's all focusing on Fota Wildlife Park, located on Fota Island near Carrigtool in County Cork, and covering 100 acres or 40 hectares in new money. Fota Wildlife Park is one of the leading wildlife attractions in Ireland, as well as one of its most important and popular tourist destinations, full stop, drawing nearly half a million visitors per year. It is unique amongst major Irish zoological experiences due to the fact that most of the resident animals roam in larger spaces and, in some cases, even amongst the visitors, allowing them to view the animals in a more natural environment than in traditional zoos. Now, the stated aim of Photo Wildlife Park is to inspire people to understand and conserve the biodiversity of our natural world. Its core values of conservation, education and research have ensured that it is uniquely placed to foster greater public understanding of the threats to plant and animal habitats and decreasing global biodiversity. But visiting the park, as I've done many times, is not just about an entertaining day out, but also about saving threatened creatures around the globe from extinction, as well as helping people to understand why these animals now find themselves in such precarious situations. Be it returning bison to the wild around Europe, rearing and releasing 7,000 of Ireland's most endangered amphibian species, the Natterjack Toad, or donating funds to a breeding programme to save the world's rarest duck, the Madagascar Pochard. FOTA is playing a key role in the survival of several species that are in grave danger of extinction. In 2023, the park will celebrate the 40th anniversary of its founding. In honour of this milestone on tonight's programme, we will speak to some of the key people at FOTA who are striving to pull endangered species back from the brink and will bring you details of some of the latest conservation and education projects that they are spearheading. On the panel tonight, Dr. Richard Collins at his home in Malahide and Niall Hatch at his home in Greystones. But now let's go to County Cork to say hello to Dr. Sean McKeown, Director of Photo Wildlife Park. Sean, thanks for joining us. Perhaps you might begin by telling us how it all started. Well, back in the early 80s, Dublin Zoo was looking to create another park outside of the, the city. They originally looked around Kildare, Meath and Wicklow. And at the same time, University College Cork had bought Photo Island and there was an arboretum there, which was open to the public, but they didn't have enough visitors. So they were looking at the possibility of starting a zoo there. So that's where the initial thoughts came around, Photo. And then that was 1981. But after about a year um, in 1982, it was agreed that they should develop the wildlife park in Photo Island between the two institutions basically set up, university gave the land and the zoological society provided the expertise and the people and the animals to set up the wildlife park. But why a wildlife park and not a zoo in the traditional sense, like Dublin Zoo, for example? It was a period when people's concepts of zoos were changing or how they wanted to view animals. It was quite progressive back then, and in the memorandum of association, on the agreement between the university and the Zoological Society of Ireland, they specifically said that they, they wanted it as a breeding centre to save species for the future of mankind. So it was slightly different than the zoo, who was much more of a public display at that stage. And people wanted to see animals with more space, with more enriched environments. That's really how photo came around. And one of the things we had difficulties at the beginning was people were coming in, walking around and not seeing animals close up, but they were far away and uh, compared to a normal zoo. So people were complaining, say, in the first year or two. And then 
when a lot of the visitors got used to the concept and the ideas, they realised this was a much better place to come and view animals and that the animals would be in a more open, natural environment. The main difference when I walk around is that the animals are not in cages, they are outside, with the exception of one or two of the perhaps more dangerous species. So did you populate your own park with animals from the collection at Dublin Zoo or did you look further afield for animals that were more accustomed to sharing the outdoor space, if you like, with other animals and indeed humans? Um, no, there were there were mixtures of animals coming from various zoos and wildlife parks throughout Europe. Some of the giraffes that originally came actually came from the wild, but had been in a zoo in Southampton for two or three years. So they were, I suppose, had to acclimatise to the weather a bit more than some of the other animals that would have been born in zoos in, in the UK or Ireland. So uh, I suppose the, the first real exotic species that came down to photo were actually Syriopsis geese. And these were bred in photo for probably six or seven generations. And they adapted quite well to the environment. Well, speaking of breeding, that's what we're all about today. We're going to look at some of the breeding programmes you're involved with, not just here in Ireland. Some are local, but most are international programmes. So talk to me a little bit about the breeding programmes. We, we are members of the um, European Association of Zoos and Aquaria. There's about 380 zoos have come together to form an association with the idea of saving species, not only in the wild, but saving animals in captivity so that they can repopulate back into the wild. So a number of the species that we would have been involved in sending to the wild would be uh, the European bison would be probably the biggest species. And we have sent animals from, from Fota bred in photo to Poland for release into the wild, into, into Romania, into the UK, northern Spain and uh, more recently Azerbaijan. So it's a variety of species, say from Europe, uh, we have animals from, from Africa, um, we have animals from Asia. Uh, we currently have elongated tortoises in our tropical house that back in 2014 when we when we first got them, were considered to be least concerned in the wild and, and not really under any great threat. Within eight years, they had become critically endangered in the wild due to the trade for tortoises in the Far East. Thing, things can change for species in the wild very quickly. Uh, we, we've seen that with pangolins. But we, we have seen it with uh, a lot of other species. So what we see... What, what um, the Wildlife Park and the other zoos that are in these breeding programs see them as a reservoir to prevent the extinction in the wild. So species like the European bison, uh, scimitar horned oryx that we'd have sent back to the wild, other species, even white-tailed seagulls we've sent to the Middle East in, in the, on the Golden Heights, which have bred also in the wild. And then there's native species that we're assisting with, like the Natterjack Toad, were involved in, a, in, a, in an augmentation programme that's to try and boost the wild population because the um, habitat that they're in in Ireland is under threat and a lot of the, the ponds that they would normally have bred in are not forming the same way as they used to a number of years ago, particularly last year where, in fact, very few ponds in the sand dunes in Kerry where these toads are found. And we've reared and released over 7,000 back to the wild. In some species, it's only a few, and in others, it's a thousand. The smaller the species, you need more volumes and numbers to actually have some sort of an impact in the ecology and habitat. Sean, the highest calling of a zoo, a modern zoo, it seems to me, is to raise animals and return them to the wild. You are a stud book holder. In other words, you are the controlling authority over northern cheetahs. For instance, you're looking at what genes are short in the population and where in the various zoos cheetahs with the missing genes the ones you want are are available now you then have to act presumably and get onto these zoos and ask them to transfer females or males as the case may be is that the process the process comes from you as stud book holder or does it come from 
some remote body such as the government of Azerbaijan in the case of bison. The captive breeding aspect for the Northern Cheetah, we oversee that in FOTA, uh, and particularly me, I, I oversee it. And at the moment, I'm currently making, at a stage where we're making recommendations for transfers of animals from different zoos. Sometimes people contact us and say they want to set up a breeding area for cheetahs. We give them advice and then we, we would send suitable animals, some maybe from FOTA, maybe some from another zoo in France that are less related, or even some would come from the Middle East from breeding centres out there. We would need to have a self-sustaining population over 80 to 100 years. And, and that's usually the aim with most of these captive breeding programmes. You're trying to keep as much diversity uh, uh, of those in the population. It's not like, um, say, farming, where you're selecting for for certain traits, we do quite the opposite. We try and keep the diversity of traits as high as possible. And there are actually computer models enable us to do that. So we put in the parents of the animals, their offspring, and then we're, we're able for, for the different lineages within the cheetah population, we're able to say that animal is not related to this. Or, you know, sometimes we put in a stud boot number and it, it'll give us 20 animals that are not as related to this particular animal and, and would be suitable to breed with it. It's come on a long way in the last 20, 30 years, uh, and it's very much more technical. In a lot of cases, we're dealing with populations that are in the wild and in captivity and are ma managed in almost a similar way. It's a, a plan under the IUCN, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and the plan is called a one-plan approach, so it involves the animals that are in, in captivity, which is the ex-situ population, and the in-situ population, which is the wild population. And in some cases, the wild population can be down to, to, to quite small numbers. With cheetahs, there is a small population of Asiatic cheetahs in Iran. There's probably 15 to 20 of those left. But the problem that they're now experiencing is that they will have high in breeding so each of those animals are quite related to each other and that causes health issues etc the chances of those becoming extinct is very very high but to, to try and save those you'd be taking cheetahs from the next related population uh, as genetically similar to that population and the cheetah population that i manage is the northern cheetah and they are recognised as being the most suitable for helping out in a situation, perhaps in Iran, where cheetahs still exist but are highly inbred. Sean, obviously great work being done at FOTA in terms of bringing back species from the brink and saving threatened animals. I would assume, at least, that a lot of your visitors are going there for entertainment reasons. How important is it to you to educate those visitors about the great work that you're doing and also about the plight that those species and others face in the wild? It's extremely important because you're, what you're trying to do is change, you know, change the the public behaviour, their thoughts and willingness to change what they're doing on a day to day basis to change the environment. So you're, you're trying to get the the respect for the animal as well uh, as just just looking at it. You want to get them to appreciate how important it is to keep the species in the wild and that it is prospering in the wild, it isn't on the verge of extinction, and if you're, that you're, you need to keep each species going and prevent them from exti becoming extinct, because if one species can have an, a, an enormous, if it goes extinct, can have an enormous effect on the other animals in that habitat or, or the ecology of the environment that the other species live in. For instance, if European bison, they have a huge beneficial aspect to them because they, they, they manage forests. They literally debark trees and the trees will die. They'll be able to open up areas of forest. In, in, in summer, they will eat the more succulent species like birch and sally and willow and other species like conifers in the wintertime, they will eat those. They can alter the environment, not just to suit them, but to make it much more diverse, you have a better quality ecosystem 
more species in it, a, a better diversity of species as well, because they're great architects in the management of the habitat. And I was listening to something today with corncrates in Scotland, Western Scotland, that the Highland cattle there use there to, to actually manage the habitat. They're the best species to actually do that. Speaking of corncrakes, Sean, sometimes when we think of zoos and wildlife parks, we think of exotic non-native animals. However, FOTA also accommodates indigenous breeds like the corncrake. And that is the call of the corncrake, sometimes likened to rubbing your fingernail along a fine tooth comb. It's a sound we are very fond of here on Mooney Goes Wild. Our 2017 dawn chorus included perhaps the first live corncrake call ever heard on the national airwaves from Tory Island off Donegal. Around two-thirds of the 150 calling males recorded in 2018 were in Donegal. Overall corncrake numbers in Ireland are down some 96% since the 1970s, mainly due to changes in agricultural practices denying them places to breed. Ten years ago, in 2012, a new corncrake breeding programme was set up within the boundaries of FOTA in conjunction with the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Jess Hodnett is the ranger with responsibility for the corncrake population there. And she took me on a behind-the-scenes tour of the incubation house. Okay, Derek, so I'm going to take you down now to our incubation house. And uh, this is where the magic happens for the birds. Uh, So this is the area that we did a lot of the rearing of the corncrake last year, from, uh, from eggs to chicks. And have the public allowed to come down here? So the public can see through the windows, yeah. So it's lovely for the, the public to have a look and see the whole process. You're all closed up. Is there anything in here now? There's a, a small few chicks in here now oh. at the moment, yeah. But we're kind of quiet, quiet season at the minute, getting prepped for spring. You want to go through that door there? Going into the chick rearing room now. Oh, you can feel the heat already. Oh, and the smell. <laughs> trying to, so obviously the chicks are very, very uh, delicate when they uh, are just hatched. So we try and keep it nice and warm in here for them. Some chicks in there. We've just got Bob White quail in here at the moment. Oh my goodness, they're tiny. That's quail. They're little quail, yeah. Oh, one, two, three, four. Oh my God, there's about 10 of them in there. That's it. So this is our incubation room, and uh, this is where we do all the artificial rearing of um, the eggs for the various species that we, we deal with. And uh, this is where the corncrake eggs were hatched last year. Okay, well I remember the old incubator from my days in school, but I don't see any chicks. No chicks. No corncrake no, chicks. No, wrong time of the year for no, the corncrake chicks. So when is the right time of year for corncrake chicks? Yeah, so we're looking at uh, the corncrakes returning to Ireland again between April and September. They'll have potentially two clutches possibly the first one in May. So mm-hmm. that's when we're going to be looking at. So let's go back to the beginning of this yes. project. Yeah. Why did it start? So FOTA is a partner uh, in the Corncrake Life project. And basically the aim of the project is to increase the numbers of corncrake uh, over the next five years by 20%. Uh, there's been developed a series of protected areas. 85% of the corncrake population exists within these areas. And uh, those are the areas that the, the project is really focusing on. Uh, FOTA is, as I said, funding a little bit. And we're also um, available for nest rescue if it is required. Mm. So because the corncrakes are a species that will often double or triple clutch, uh, if there's a a situation as happened last year where we had a nest that was in danger, so with the mowing of the hay in the meadows, we got a call from Fanned Head in Donegal that there was a nest uh, in danger, so under licence the MPWS collected those eggs and very, very carefully transported them down to us. And uh, we managed to, yeah, artificially incubate them for a couple of days. They were quite far along in their uh, incubation process when we got them. And then head started them for two weeks. So that was an absolutely amazing experience to see them hatching and to get to rear them and see them develop. And then they went back to Fanet and to a soft To where they came from, pretty much. To where they came from. So they're a very interesting species in terms of their migratory pattern. So they migrate to Ireland every year for breeding. Mm -hmm. And uh, they go back to Africa then for the winter. Uh, But the thing about them is that the the, uh, chicks, they uh, do celestial mapping. So it's a homing 
uh, strategy. So we had to be very careful with our chicks here when we reared them that they didn't see the night sky in photo. So how did you avoid that? <laughs> so we put screens on the windows at night time so that okay. they, uh, the chicks couldn't see you the stars. You didn't replicate the sky. No. Oh, that would have been a good idea. That might have been an idea. For yeah, next perhaps, year, yeah. we'll have to uh, get onto that one. Um, so was Are we sure that's how they navigate? Um, yeah, we're fairly confident that okay. that's it's how they navigate. Isn't Absolutely it? Absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, so that's why it's also very difficult if the corn creek are uh, disappearing from a range or an area, it's very difficult to um, get them back into that area because the chicks will map from the first night sky that they see. So it's important that they, uh, yeah, the ones we reared here, that they saw the Donegal sky. So now were those birds ringed? Those birds were ringed, yes. So that's the exciting part about it. So we reared nine, mm -hmm. uh, released nine, mm -hmm. and um, with the rings that they have on, we're hoping that come the spring, we'll get some feedback. So now we have to explain to the listener at this point that these are migratory species. Absolutely, yes. So, uh, they so they're not in Ireland all year round? No, they they're are not. They're coming here from? Africa. Africa. Yep. And so when do they come exactly? Yeah, so they're coming in April. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in April, they're, yeah, they're coming to the west coast of Ireland, northwest coast of Ireland. And uh, they're looking for lovely areas of habitat, lots of cover. And uh, after they uh, arrive here, they'll start to call. So the males will start calling. And that's an excellent way for us to get a kind of a population count on the birds, the calling males. They do a beautiful call, kind of a crex, crex call. Yeah, exactly, excellent, yeah. Oh. <laughs> a perfect one. Um, yeah, so they'll, they'll arrive here in April and they'll start their courtship behaviour. And then, yeah, hopefully laying uh, April, May, start June and then they'll if they're successful they will definitely rear a second clutch if they can yeah so it'd be very exciting to see if those birds come back absolutely because you'll know where they went to yes you'll know when they came back if you see those rings on them again absolutely. and you know that that head start that you gave them was the right type of head start to absolutely. give them was it the first time you gave a head start to chicks yes so it we was, have okay. uh, in photo we have our own kind of uh, captive birds that we have been working with and rearing for almost a decade um, so it's been invaluable to gain that experience um, within the park of the husbandry of the species what's required for the incubation um, so over the years we've really built that level of experience so we felt very confident that we could have huge success with these eggs and I suppose the whole conservation of the species it's a multifaceted approach so you have all these different um, stakeholders coming together you have the the habitat protection you have the public awareness and then you have hopefully a successful head starting mm. project with these eggs but you can't do it without a lot of volunteers around the country and without the money to fund absolutely. the project so you get some money from the eu as well as absolutely yes yeah yeah, funded by the EU, um, the Corn Creek Life Project. Yeah, and um, why do you like the Corn Creek? <laughs> I just think they're a beautiful, shy, elusive bird. And when you talk to farmers, um, they very, very often talk of nostalgia about mm. singing corn crakes around the country. Um, I suppose my background is... Uh, with native species, I studied um, wildlife biology in Tralee and uh, we studied the corn crake uh, while I was there. So it was an absolute privilege for me to get the opportunity to then go and um, work here, work with them. And uh, I've gone to see them in Tory. They're just beautiful, beautiful. So you birds. heard them in the wild and I saw have them? and saw them. I've only yes. ever seen one wild corn crake I in my life. I saw one, yeah. On Inish Boffin. Oh, fantastic. And I can't even remember. That must be about 25 years okay, ago. Yeah. And I couldn't get over it. But then, as I think it was Don Connery who said to me at the time, Mm -hmm. Well, that's the beauty of this bird. Yeah. It keeps well hidden. Absolutely. It's part of its nature. Yeah. And it. I said, oh, yeah, okay. So he said, don't be disappointed. Yes. But he said, you did hear it. I said, I did hear it. <laughs> and some years ago, we started the Dawn Chorus mm -hmm. and we had from Tory corn crakes calling. Mm -hmm. And in fact, because they called through the night, yes. they were the first birds technically to call in the Dawn Chorus. Ouch. We went on air at midnight and they were singing. Amazing. It was amazing. amazing. So we didn't say anything. Yeah. We just let people hear the corn crakes sing. And the response we got was just incredible. Yeah. From people who remembered it from their childhood, mm -hmm. from people who lived with them, mm. what few there were left, and for people who were saying they couldn't believe it was a bird. It's absolutely fantastic sound. So yeah, when I arrived on Tory to see them, a similar situation, I, we just we were camping, we set up our tents, and there they were behind us calling uh, this elusive bird that we, we hear so much about. It was 
Yeah, delighted to hear Well, it. listen, it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Terribly disappointed I didn't actually see them, but I'll just have to come down at a time of year when you Absolutely. have Absolutely, you'll have to come back So for the benefit of the listeners, they could come and see these birds, yes. you know, when they hatch out of the eggs, the possibly. ones that you're rearing here, possibly here, yeah. through the glass. Yes. Uh, exactly. Uh, when would that be again? Uh, so we're talking from April onwards. Yeah. And also at the moment, um, we are working on building a kind of a, a conservation breeding centre. We would like to be able to uh, roll out this kind of head starting with lots of other species, yeah. possibly grey partridge. And um, I've seen it done with curly up the north. Yes. And yeah. It works. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, so uh, once that's built, there will be corn crakes uh, for people to see as well. So the public yeah. can get a good look at them. Jess Hodnett, who's the keeper with responsibility for the Corn Crake Breeding Programme and a very successful one it seems to be at Photo Wildlife Park. So congratulations again to all involved. Now, Niall, you want to ask Director Sean McKeown about the Madagascar Pochard. Yes, uh, Sean, an- another bird indeed, obviously a subject close to my heart. But one of the projects that you're involved with, I think, that interests me the most is your work with the Madagascar Pochard, a work that you're, you're funding abroad um, for the, the conservation of this species. The rarest duck in the world, in fact, so rare it was believed to be extinct for several years until its rediscovery around 2006. Can you tell us a bit more about that bird? What does it look like? How does it live? And what is Photo doing to save it? Madagascar Pochard is a is a diving duck. It's it's quite a, a short, stubby neck so it's easy for it to dive they're a diving species of bird and they become quite rare because the habitat was being degraded the adults could survive but they couldn't uh, rear any young so when they found the remaining potcher in i think it was 25 24 25 left uh, and they spent some time studying them they realized there was no youngsters being recruited because they either they were being eaten or the habitat wasn't suitable to actually allow those ducklings mature. This is a program with Jersey Dural Institute and WWT, Wildfowler and Wetlands Trust. They decided that they would collect some eggs, take them into captivity and start rearing them. They did a pilot study in, and they suddenly realised, well, that would work. They approached FOTA to see if we would be willing to, to fund a breeding centre. So uh, we donated over 80,000 to develop a, the first breeding centre for Madagascar and Pochard. Um, and they were able to grow those numbers to 60 or 70 and then start releasing them back into other sites around Madagascar. So uh, I was lucky enough to be out in Madagascar, see them, see the breeding centre, see the young ducklings being reared and then to go up and see them being released back into the wild. Sean, when it comes to reintroduction, be it of Madagascar potchards or corncrakes or bison or any of these these other species, obviously captive breeding alone isn't enough. You can produce these animals in captivity, but if the the reasons for their original extinction or, or depletion in the wild haven't been addressed, then won't work. Those those animals will just be doomed to fail in the same way. So as part of this, I, I'm presuming that things like habitat restoration, uh, education of local populations, uh, removal of hunting pressures, all of those kind of things must be a very important part of these projects as well not just the captive breeding side of things. Yes, there would, there would have been. Uh, one of the big things they had in, in Madagascar was um, snake-headed fish or predatory fish that were introduced into a number of the uh, lakes and, uh, in, in Madagascar, basically for food. Uh, and that had a dramatic effect on, on the survival of, of, of young potchard. But there was also degradation to, to the lakes themselves, particularly around the edges of the lake, from human, basically human interaction, they, they um, were also boring forest around the area, so you got run off into the into the lake. So um, it just wasn't as productive. And by changing that and restoring habitat, they were able to start a reintroduction program for them. They have been one of the lucky species in in, in Madagascar, and uh, you know, two other species that. We have in photo the, the the primates, the black and white roughed lemur and the ringtail lemur. Their populations have crashed from hundreds of thousands down to, in the case of the ringtail lemur, down to about three thousand. And in the black and white roughed lemur, it, there's only two or three hundred left. In in the case of the black and white roughed lemur, there have been a number of studies done, but they don't really know what aspect to the environment 
it's so critical to, to the rough lemur and um, what is the actual reason for their their decline when there are other species that are doing quite well in some cases in the same habitat. Well, you mentioned habitat destruction earlier also in relation to another species, Sean, that's the Natterjag toad, Ireland's rarest and most endangered native amphibian species. Their existence in the wild is restricted to just a handful of coastal habitats in County Kerry, becoming endangered due to land reclamation and changes in farming practices. However, FOTA are now playing a key part in boosting numbers along with the National Parks and Wildlife Service. The Wildlife Park has released... 7,000 toadlets. Terry Flanagan was with me in Photo Wildlife Park during the week. All good, Terry? Yes, Derek. And while you were looking at the corncrakes, I was looking at the natterjack toad. Now, the natterjack toad is one of only three Irish amphibians, the other being the common frog and the smooth newt. But the natterjack toad, it's been struggling here. It struggles in England, in in Wales, and also here in Ireland. They're only found in, in County Kerry. There's a number of differences between frogs and toads. And once you see the natterjack toad, you're not going to mix it up with anything else. It's got this lovely yellow line, this stripe that goes down the middle of its back. And Derek, you'll remember going back 20 odd years ago or so, the natterjack toad was the emblem of the programme. It was. I remember the first time I saw them was about 20 years ago when I was doing a report for the programme with Ferdy Marnell down in Castle Gregory and that distinctive call that they had and he was out there monitoring their numbers. Well, as I said, their numbers have not been doing well and since 2016, FOTA have been involved in breeding them and releasing them back to the wild. And of course, this happens behind the scenes I met up with John McLaughlin, who's in charge of this breeding and release project. Come on over here, Terry, and I'll show you where they are. Um, how was your trip down today? It was great. Came down by train. First time I've come down by train, and then when you get into Cork, straight onto the Cove train, brings you right to the door here. It does. It's a great asset we have here that the train stops right outside our gates. Yeah. Well, we're going to move indoors now, I think, are we? Yep, I'll take you inside. To this I... is your porta cabin, is this it? This is it. This is what keeps me very busy all summer. So we're, we're moving indoors now, and we're moving into a, a porta cabin with lots of what look like cages or fish tanks, but they're they're not full of water. They're kind of a sandy material. They are. This is where we keep the adult toads uh, that we have here at Foda. Now these are not just any ordinary toads. No, these are our native uh, natterjack toad. Right. But they're not normally found in County Cork. They're normally found it, in County Kerry. That's correct. These are ones that we've basically brought here to work on breeding them in captivity. Now, um, I'm just looking here. I can't see any I at the see moment. One there. Where? Underneath that leaf of the. Oh, corner. yes, I can see. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's almost covered in sand. It's very camouflaged, but he's got that distinctive yellow line down the back. That's right. That's one of the easiest ways to tell them apart from the common frog that you might see. If it's got that bright yellow stripe, it's a, it's a toad. And, of course, they don't hop, they walk. They, that's correct. Now, they've been doing poorly in Ireland for a number of years, and what you're trying to do here is you're trying to rear them in captivity so that you can rewild them. That's right. We've been doing it since 2016, where we would get spawn or tadpoles from the wild. We bring them here. We rear them on in tubs till they're tiny little uh, toadlets, and then we send them back to be released. And toads, like a lot of amphibians, they just produce thousands of eggs with the hopes that one or two of them survive. There's no parental care whatsoever, so they're kind of at their own mercy of the whether the pond dries up, whether there's a big diving beetle that feasts on them. I was there one time, and we were collecting some egg strings, and there was a leech hoovering up the whole string at the same time we were catching so there's nothing protecting them um so they like i say out of a string of 2000 you might get 20 whereas if i took that string of 2000 here i could probably get to t- to the little toadlet stage maybe 1500 of them that's very very good and that just increases the odds of them surviving now there's a second one i see in there too he's just there underneath that slate that's right. There's actually three in there. If we, right. uh, there's one male and two females in that pen there. Um, now, this project's been in operation for a number of years now. Tell me a little bit about it. It's actually a very nice project to be involved in. We Every spring, we would basically get a batch of either eggs or tadpoles. We bring them back here to Foda. I set them up in tubs, baths, really. Once they hatch... Uh, we just basically they get fed a mixture of some fish food, 
Um, that's you know that's for the most part. You just feed them up lettuce. You know when they get when the starts get a bit bigger, we just basically um, would feed them lettuce as well. You just freeze the lettuce first and then thaw it out and throw it in, and it's soft enough then for them to chew on and eat. It's very similar, I suppose, to taking frog spawn. I'd say almost identical. Mm. The process involved. And how long does this whole process, this metamorphosis, take? <clears throat> it varies. You're looking sometimes, you know. And it's genetically driven rather than environmentally driven I'm, because in the past I probably wouldn't have been so confident in saying that. But because we've raised enough here and I have single egg strings and yet I might get a variation. Some might metamorphosize, start metamorphosizing in you know, four weeks time. Others, I've seen it be 12 weeks before they start to metamorphosize and yet they all came from the same to the mm-hmm. same batch so and i assume it's just a, a strategy i would say they have because you know very um precocial they don't look after the young so is it really difficult now if i was saying somebody no but there was a lot of there was a lot of learning you know we've been doing this six years there was a lot of learning a lot of tweaking things um sometimes when they emerge they come out you think oh grand but then you come in the next morning and find them drowned in their own pool and you're thinking how does this happen but mm. again it just you know, trial and error. Trial and mm-hmm. error, and you learned. But it's it's a matter of getting enough food into them and keeping things clean. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole trick to it. So it takes a lot of time in the summer months. That's why I said to you, this is where I spend all my time, just constantly feeding and cleaning, and then it's not hard. <laughs> and one thing I notice about them as well too is how well camouflaged they are, because it's a it's a kind of a sandy soil that you have them on with that tradescentia plant, and then the lighting. And they blend in really, really well for an animal that's green. They do. They are remarkable. And in fact, there's times I struggle to find them in the pens. Um, This is probably part of the problem with monitoring them in the wild. Again, they're not that easy to find. They blend in. They tend to be nocturnal. So they're, they're, they're well suited to survive if they get everything else right for them. What do these feed on then, these adults? Basically, they'll eat anything that'll fit in their mouth. Um, But it's mostly, it's invertebrates. In the summer, I might get some earthworms for them, things like that. They'll eat those as well. They're not fussy. It it just needs to move a bit to catch their eye, and they'll eat it. Um, In fact, along some of the coastal shores, you'll see them eating those... um, those rock hoppers, you know, those things. If you ever turn over a stone on the beach, they go hopping along. They'll they'll feast on those as well. I'll just show you here under this little stone here. What you'll see... Back side of it. Oh, there's another one there. Look at him. You'll see a toad under it. Yes. And he's kind of buried himself in under that slab. Yeah, and that's what they would do in the in the for winter. Normally, they would um, just dig into either an old rabbit hole in the sand or just a hole in the you know could even be from some bird or something in the sand dunes. They'll just go down into a deep hole and sleep off while it's cold. Uh, But you'll see on the back of these. These are um these are springtails that are on the back. Tiny. They're tiny. You can see them running around on a chunk. Now. The adult toads wouldn't be bothered eating these. They're a bit too small for them. Mm. But this is what we feed the, um, the little toadlets when they hatch. Right. And they will eat as many of these as I can possibly get. And where do you get them? Well, these, I do breed some here. I can show you that. Okay. Let me just put this back. Make sure you don't crush him. Yep. He's sound asleep in there, isn't yeah. he? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so just going over to the far side of your... So I have a cabinet here where I, uh, where I breed some of these. Here, and I can show you the... You're breeding some of these. These are some of these are some of these um, springtails. Yeah. Uh, So this is the food for the for the the toadlets. Right. Uh, This is their first food. Um, I always keep a little culture of the springtails going for the the winter. The culture is on what looks like to me to be charcoal. That's exactly what it's on. It ten. It's you know I did a lot of research. It's moist. There's a bit of water in the bottom of the tray just to keep the humidity high. These guys like humidity the charcoal's porous enough that it basically allows them to lay their eggs and stuff down in through it and they don't get eaten by something else and it just works as a very good medium for culturing them and i see a, a number of fungal colonies there as well basically the springtails just eat that fungus and they that's what their food is i mean they're, they're nature's little cleanup crew so in the in the wild they would be the things helping to eat yeah. the detritus and the fungus so that's a self-contained habitat there that you have and all it's doing is producing more and more and more springtails that you're going to use for the toadlets that's correct that's exactly what it is but come summer when we're in full swing and we've got you know we might have at certain times i might have five six hundred toadlets on the go you'd need quite a lot of them i have to we buy in some from a commercial breeder that does it for the um for the pet trade you know they sell them 
This year then, you've released 500 toadlets. Have you any idea of how, how successful they can be? In other words, I'm thinking, you can't really tag them like a bird. Is there any way you can monitor them? Not at the moment. The only way we'll monitor them is you basically, because they don't, they don't spread out that far, that you would go back to the sites in three to four years' time, and if the amount, especially if some of these places we've let them go are um, sort of virgin ponds that have been created by farmers as part of a scheme. So if we've released there in three, four years' time, if there's toadlets breeding in the pond, we know we've had a success because mm-hmm. they probably came from, from our release. But that's really, at the moment, the only feasible way of monitoring them is just to look as you monitor every year, see if the population is showing up in places that they hadn't been before or in, at least increasing in places that there are some but not many. So this is something that goes on behind the scenes here in photo that the public don't really know anything about. But what you're doing, you're helping to conserve an Irish species. That's correct. Very little advertising goes around it. And no, the public never get to see this. Um, now it is hoped in the next year or two we are planning to build a little display that the public can see the toads in. But that hasn't. we don't have that at the moment. Right now it's just been focused on the, on the project, get it yeah. done, get it done right. Yes. And not worry so much about the public side of things. Thank you, Terry and John. Now, Sean McKeown earlier mentioned that education is key to understanding and caring for the natural world. And education built around research and conservation is one of the core values of Photo Wildlife Park. Their education department offers schools and colleges a wide variety of modules and workshops on ecology, wildlife management and biodiversity conservation where primary, secondary and third level students have an opportunity to see conservation at work. In a few moments, we'll speak with Linda McSweeney, who's head of the education department at Photo Wildlife Park. But first, let's eavesdrop on one of their workshops. So, hello everyone, and welcome to Photo Wildlife Park. We're going to begin doing our field work for today. So we'll begin here, doing our abiotic factors, or non-living factors, and then we'll do our grassland surveys outside here. Finally, before moving up into the woodland to do our animal surveys later on today. Um, so I have myself here, John, and we have Emer behind us here, and we shall now be taking you through our first section. And Linda McSweeney joins us now. Linda, you might just explain what's going on there. So, Derek, those were two members of Photo Wildlife Park's education mm-hmm. team, um, both John Armstrong and Emer Thornton, providing a practical field ecology session to some students from Cumber College during the week. And how often do you have students in, Linda? Believe it or not, we have students roughly for about 10 months of the year, so starting somewhere in or around early February, right through until almost the start of December, Derek. We're very, very fortunate that we tend to have a rather packed schedule uh, in Photo Wildlife Park's education department. Well, what better place to learn about the outdoors than in Photo Wildlife Park? You're surrounded by wildlife. But talk to me a little bit about the education team and when it all began. The education department in Photo Wildlife Park was established back in 1995. Um, Mm. I suppose prior to my arrival in the park, there had been some relatively self-guided options available to schools. And then um, I came to the Wildlife Park as an intern back in 1995. And part of my remit was to actually establish a a formal education programme, as well as a series of um, public engagement events uh, that would promote biodiversity conservation. Uh, I'm very happy to say that year on year, our attendance figures have actually increased, Eric. So much so that in pre-COVID, we were just shy of just over 19,500 students participating in our formal education programme. So um, I'm glad to say that, yes, it is actually increasing (laughs) annually. Took a little bit of a hit over COVID, obviously. We didn't have a substantial number of schools on site. Uh, Quite a lot of our learning was through virtual learning. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm very, very happy to, to, to say that we're coming to the end of almost 2022 and we have just over 17,000 students that participated in the modules this year. So we're actually really, really proud of what we've achieved despite all of the limitations even at the start of the year with social distancing as well. That's fantastic. And I believe you received a Sanford Award for Heritage Education. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I can. The Sanford, we're, we're very, very fortunate. We're one of three institutions in Ireland. Um, the Epic Museum in Dublin is a recent recipient of the award. Mm-hmm. But the Sanford Award was established by Lord Sanford in the UK back in 1978. Um, and in actual fact, despite the fact it's been around for quite a substantial period of time, it's only had 500 recipients in both Ireland and the UK. And ourselves and Chester Zoo are two zoological collections that are, are fortunate enough to actually have retained that title. So it's, it's a kite mark. It emphasises that we're Centre of Excellence for Natural Heritage Education, which is really, really important, certainly to me and the whole team, education team in Photo Wildlife Park as well. 
And how much does climate change focus in your education now? Almost every single module that we offer, in actual fact, takes climate change uh, into consideration. We look at the, the I suppose, its, its negative impact in relation to species displacement. We also evaluate with students, I suppose, what we try to, to, to focus on is not necessarily all the doom and gloom, Derek, but to, to ensure that, mm-hmm. that we can offer them the, the knowledge base, first and foremost, perhaps equip them with some skills to ensure that going forward that they become part of the solution rather than the problem. Um, so I think that's a very positive aspect of what we do in Photo Wildlife Park as well. Absolutely, Niall. Linda, 19,500 students in a year is a very impressive total. I imagine that must be quite an undertaking to do. How many of you work in the education team and do you have enough space there to, to cater for all those people? Believe it or not, we're a very, very small team. Um, there are two full-time members of the education team, myself and my colleague, Rachel Taylor. Um, and then we we employ, well, it can often be seasonal-based. We may have up to eight to ten educators in the height of the season, uh, anywhere from April onwards. But we have two permanent and, I suppose, in around four others uh, that are on seasonal contracts with us as well. So um, we, I suppose, we accommodate a substantial number of students, but I think we're very efficient now at this stage. I know that a lot of institutions, when they focus on environmental education, a lot of the emphasis is on primary level, and that, that's obviously very important. But I know that in photo, you also cover secondary and third level. That's a very wide range. Does that require a lot of different types of skills? And talking of skills, what sort of background knowledge or understanding of the issues do the students have when they first come to you? It varies, to to be honest with you. I think for the most part, the students are very much up to date. They're very proactive in terms of, I suppose, um, environmental protection. Let's face it, it is a very topical issue. Um, so I suppose our purpose is to actually build on their existing knowledge base, um, to progress that a little bit further, to, to very much give them the opportunity to discuss it, to come up with possible solutions. Um, so it is diverse, without doubt. I suppose we're one of the very few institutions that do teach quite a wide diversity, anything from primary right through to tertiary students um, but I would have to say that's probably what we find most enjoyable about the job is that no single day is the same. One of the big advantages of course that you have over a lot of other educational institutions is that you have a large number of very impressive animals mm-hmm. there on site. <laughs> I'm sure they're a big draw. Um, do you find that that actually is a great benefit to those students? They can get, not quite hands-on, but they can definitely make their own observations of these creatures and also see how captive breeding and conservation go hand in hand along with the entertainment value of places like Photo. Oh, absolutely, without doubt. I suppose, you know, we're very fortunate that, that zoological collections and aquariums as a whole, that they're, they're, they provide basically, I suppose, an ideal learning environment for, for different learning styles. And having that collection available to us uh, provides us with endless opportunities. So we can cater to different learning styles, such as kinesthetic, whether they're visual learners, auditory, tactile, for example. We're very fortunate that we have those tools on hand to actually, you know, to, to ensure that it's a benefit to all those in attendance. And you're building a new education centre too. I don't want to boast, Derek. Do, do. Said, but yes, yes, we, we are. It's an extremely exciting phase for Photo Wildlife Park. I suppose it's very gratifying uh, to see that, that the, the Board of Governors and Sean McKeown, our director, um, has a lot of faith in us. So we, are, we have a substantial investment going forward. We've just gone to build broken ground on a new state-of-the-art complex that should be completed, hopefully, fingers crossed, by this time next year. Yes, when you celebrate your 40th birthday, Richard Collins... Hello, Linda. No better person to undertake such a thing. Now, if I were a student coming through the gate of FOTA on such a course, what would I experience? Will I go behind the scenes, for instance? Would I get to handle a snake, a live snake? How diverse would this experience be for me? And how different would it be from the experience of an ordinary punter coming into the zoo? I suppose, do you know, Richard, it really depends on which module that you're actually coming to partake in. If it's something like a junior leaving cert practical field ecology course, then there is a theoretical aspect to it, um, just to ensure that students have the, the, the foundation in ecology, that they understand the importance of it, because let's face it, no better place than, than, than photo wildlife part to actually focus on that. There is a theoretical aspect to it, but the bulk of the day is actually based in the outdoors, um, carrying out qualitative and quantitative assessments of woodland flora and fauna. It may not be 
be to every student's liking, let it be said, but it is part of the national curriculum, both junior and, and senior levels. So it's an extremely important part uh, of those two individual exam years as well. Then again, if you come to us as part of our team building programme for both first year and transition year students, then you will have a totally different experience. I suppose that's when we will focus uh, the whole day out and about, meeting, greeting with the Rangers in the Wildlife Park, um, having an opportunity to, to ask what it's like to get up close and personal with some of these amazing animals uh, that Derek just mentioned. And, and I have to say, I really have to emphasize that despite the fact I'm in the Wildlife Park almost 28 years, I can say for sure there has never been a day when something hasn't mesmerised me. And, and that's the sort of, I suppose, passion that we hope to, to pass on to students. And I think when they have the opportunity to see something uh, as amazing as a giraffe or maybe a rhino up close and personal, then they really begin to appreciate the importance of biodiversity. They certainly learn from you, but do you learn from them? You must get some very intriguing questions from time to time. What? And you must we, learn we, a lot we, looking up things you didn't know or things you didn't answer very satisfactorily well, in the past. We certainly do. And do you know what? The, the, probably the, the biggest cohort to ask those difficult questions are actually the smallies, Richard. They're not necessarily the older ones. They're the, the sort of questions that come from even junior and senior infants or I suppose with their vivid imaginations and their enthusiasm. There's, there's no, they have that self-confidence. There's no inhibition, I suppose, there. So they will pose those questions that sometimes you have to look at your colleague and say to yourself, I actually have no idea what the answer to this question is. So believe me, yes, throughout my, my, my years of experience, experience as an educator, um, I have been in that position. I've always told myself not to lie, not to exaggerate, because inevitably I'll probably get found out by these kids. Any memorable occasion in which you were caught out? No, I, there probably has, but maybe in my age I've actually forgotten them. There, there, I suppose I've had some very, very funny moments with students. Um, one that I can recount was with um, a group of, of, of senior infants, and going back about 10 or 12 years ago, where we were we were explaining the, the whole concept of extinction. And I didn't want to necessarily put a very negative slant in it, but we did want to emphasise at the same time what was happening to biodiversity. And one of the little kids piped up and he suggested that his granny had become extinct. Um, and this is rather, this is an issue that you're not really 100% sure what you should say in reply to it. So I again reiterated what extinction was all about, gone forever. And he sort of argued the point and said, well, that is what where my granny has gone. She is gone and she's not coming back. So I suppose from a child's mind, it can be so different compared to, you know, some, some of the, the older students that we get may not necessarily want to ask questions. They don't want to stand out in the class. And it's normally when you have them outside and when they're in smaller groups that they're more likely to ask you uh, something that they're curious about, let it be said, but in, definitely in smaller groups. Anyway, lovely to talk to you, Linda. Thank you very much indeed. Likewise, Derek, and thank you to all the team. You're very welcome. Now, we can't talk about Photo Wildlife Park without at least giving you an opportunity to visit there yourself. Yes, we have a little competition. You can only enter online. Here is Roisin Fitzgerald with the question. Hi, Derek. Roisin here from Photo Wildlife Park. The first thing I want to do is wish all your listeners and your team a really, really happy Christmas. Thank you. And now for some great Christmas news. We have five family passes to give away, day passes, for two adults and four children to Photo Wildlife Park, valid for 12 months. And all you have to do is answer the following very simple question. In what year did Photo Wildlife Park open to the public? Now, folks, remember we're open all year round, bar Christmas Day, Christmas Eve and Stevens's Day. There's loads to do and see when you get here. Uh, we have lots of wonderful animals, including endangered species, such as European bison, there's the Indian rhino and the new baby, Jai. There's the Sumatran tiger, Asian lion, and of course, the penguins. Everybody loves the penguins. In what year did Photo Wildlife Park open to the public? All details can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's pretty much all we have time for today. My thanks to Sean McKeown and his team at Photo Wildlife Park, to Richard Collins, Terry Flanagan and Niall Hatch, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and our researcher, John Bella Riley. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye!